Hi, Pastor Anthony here. At Vintage Faith Church, we stand behind the Bible's claim to be the Word of God, and we believe that the Scriptures contain everything needed for life and godliness. The Scriptures testify to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray that this recording stirs your faith towards that end. This is in no way meant to be a substitute for the local church gathering, which we believe is critical to your growth as a Christian and your walk with Christ. We pray that you will find the sermon edifying and challenging. Thank you for listening. Okay, so if you've, uh, again, been with us the last five months, we've been in the book of Hebrews. And over those five months, you've been hearing a lot about Jesus. Like, who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? What is Jesus doing now? And why does all of that matter? That, that has been the book of Hebrews from the beginning to where we are um, today. And I would uh, just maybe float a new idea out to you that what you've been hearing is pure gospel. The book of Hebrews is pure gospel. And it might not be gospel in the way that you have understood the gospel. Um, it is gospel going deep. It's the writer explaining to us about why does all of this matter and why did this happen like it did. The book of Hebrews challenges us with what we think we already know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It brings us deeper. And this is good. This is really good. Because a shallow understanding of the gospel produces shallow worship. And shallow worship produces shallow joy. And shallow joy produces shallow obedience. And shallow obedience produces weak disciples with weak testimonies who look more like the world than they do Christ. So this is why depth matters. This is why depth matters. And in and, and, and all of the, the, the sermons in, in Hebrews, I get that, that there's going to be things that are going over some of, some of your head, and, 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 and then there's going to be things that, that you can grab onto. And this is the Bible. I mean, I, I'm a pastor here, and I read the Bible, and I don't always understand it. I mean, it takes work and effort to understand the Word of God, and that is designed by by God to to be like that. So I would encourage you to to think of the book of Hebrews as gospel from beginning to end. It's it's just gospel. All right, let's let's get into it. Hebrews 9, um, we're going to take verse 15 in in a few uh, chunks here. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus is the mediator. Have you ever wondered why we need a mediator? The book of Hebrews has been um, really exploring that, but uh, I I would submit to you that this this idea goes back as far as probably the oldest book written in the Bible. Men and women knew that God was holy and they were sinners and there was a chasm between them and they could not approach this holy God. In the book of Job, he, he, he's being um, 
just pressed by, by his friend, like, hey, you're, you're probably in sin. This is why you're experiencing all this um, calamity. And, and Job is kind of reasoning back and forth with his friend. And, and he says at one point, of God, for he, God, is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. So you, you see very, um, just a, a, a echo of this desire like Job knows, I need an arbiter. I need someone that can stand between a holy God and a sinful man who can represent me to God and put his hand on me and put his hand on, on God in a sense and, and bridge that gap. He is crying out for Jesus. That's in the book of Job, and right in chapter 9. We need a mediator. We need a mediator. And of course, if you've been following with us, that mediator can be none other than God and man. Fully God full and fully human, the man and the God-man, Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul says of, of this, of this idea that we need a mediator. He says, two things that every human being absolutely must come to understand are the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. These topics are difficult for people to face, and they go together. If we understand who God is and catch a glimpse of his majesty, purity, and holiness, then we are instantly aware of the extent of our own corruption. When that happens, we fly to grace because we recognize there's no way we could ever stand before God apart from grace. Amen. This is what we said last week. If we're denying our sin, we don't need a Savior. But if we confess our sins, he is just to, to cleanse us for our, our, our righteousness. If we say that, that all of our sin problems are just, he did that, and um, maybe this is the history of my family, and my parents did this to me, and we get into that whole psychobabble um, that, that is anti-gospel, we actually can convince ourselves that we don't actually need a Savior, because we're not actually a sinner. But what Sproul is saying here and what Job knew and what the writer of Hebrews is saying is we are sinners and we need a mediator to approach a holy God. Last week we talked about the conscience and how the conscience can, can haunt us. And we, we talked about how that conscience can be seared and how we can do evil and because our conscience is seared, we, we don't even feel it. And when Christ goes in to the Holy of Holies with his own blood, that blood does something that the blood of the goats and the bulls could not do. It perfects our conscience. It settles it. It once and for all settles our conscience. And then as we're sanctified in Christ, our conscience is, is calibrated. It becomes in line with God. And evil becomes evil and good becomes good. We live in a day and an age where that is the conscience is so seared that people are calling evil good and good evil. And this is nothing new. Isaiah talked about it 700 years before Jesus. He is the mediator. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Let's go to Jeremiah 31. 
just read the, the, what the writer of Hebrews has been quoting and will quote again, which is the new covenant. So the writer of uh, Jer- Jeremiah is speaking um, to Israel. God is speaking to Jeremiah through Jeremiah to Israel. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Amen. So the writer here of Hebrews is saying, Hey, remember, Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. The new covenant's better than the old. The blood of Jesus is better than goats and and bulls. And here we have the old covenant um, contrasted with the new. In, In the old covenant, if they disobeyed, they were exiled from the land. It was, you do this and live, you do this and die. But the new covenant, God comes into the hearts of his people and they forgives their sin, washes them clean, purifies the conscience, and actually gives the the people of God the power to obey. The law is no longer on the outside haunting us. It's on the inside of our hearts, and we want to obey it. It's a better covenant. It's a better covenant. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. All right, let's keep going in Hebrews. So that those who are called may receive the promise, eternal inheritance. If you're in here right now and you call yourself a Christian, if you say, I've been born again by the blood of Jesus, he has washed me, you have been called. The Lord has called you. He has ransomed you, not by anything that you have done. It is all him, nothing that we can ever take um, and say this is ours, it is the Lord's. You've been called, and not just called to be forgiven of sins, although that is amazing, but you've been called to a promised eternal inheritance. This is amazing, brothers and sisters. I don't know if you've ever meditated on what that promised eternal inheritance is, but it is minimally, at the very least, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life with the the Lord, restored bodies, restored minds, tears wiped away, everlasting life with God, feasting, the new heavens and the new earth. It's, It's incomprehensible. We don't know anything other than this life and the brokenness and fallenness and evil that we deal with so much on a day-to-day basis that we think it's normal. But there's an inheritance for his saints and his people, and that should stir us with joy. He's called you into that. Amen.
All right, so let's keep, keep rolling here in Hebrews. Um, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at a death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. All right, so this is kind of the parts of Hebrews where you may have read this before, and you're like, I'm not quite sure where, what he's talking about or where he's going, and hopefully I can unpack this a little bit for you. Um, first of all, depending on the Bible that you're using, your translation might say will or covenant, and the, he, the, the Greek word is the same for, for will, covenant, testament. It's kind of the, the, the same um, word being used. Um, most theologians will say what the author is doing here is comparing a will to a covenant. He's, he's comparing, saying, hey, a covenant is, is like a will. And, and if you're in here, we have um, definitely a population that would know about a will. Some of you, um, actually, hands up if you have a will. I mean, you don't have to do that. But yeah, okay, right. So, so you know what a will is. You've, you've gone through that process. Um, you may have broken things down like, uh, okay, uh, we have this amount of money in our 401k. Um, when we pass, if whatever's left, this goes to this kid, this goes to this kid, or whoever you determine that that goes to. It might be assets and property, uh, money in the bank, maybe investments. You, you have some wealth. Um, and, and obviously some people have a lot of wealth, but you, you have wealth. And you, when you think through a will, you're thinking through, when I die... Where is this wealth going? But, but as long as you're alive, that wealth is yours. It only goes into effect, a will, when you pass. Your assets go to the person you noted that they would go to. The author of Hebrews here is saying that this is how the new covenant begins. The death of the one with all the assets. Jesus Christ, he's got everything. Everything that the Father has is his. We read that time and time again in the scriptures. It's all Christ. He's got it all. And we are poor sinners with nothing. But when Christ died, just like a will, all of his wealth, and all of the, the assets that the Son has and is going to inherit from the Father is now transferred to his people. Now, yes, we don't have it yet. We taste it now, and we can have some of it. This is the already and the not yet. But Jesus Christ, um, as he, when he died, the new covenant begins, just like a will. And this is all the author is doing. Paul in 2 Corinthians says it a little like this, for, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, for your sake, for my sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Amen. This is the gospel. What, what the writer of Hebrews is talking about with a will and the covenant is, is the gospel. How does this happen? 
How can a holy God, who, which we read the quote from, from R.C. Sproul, holy God who's perfect in love, perfect in holiness, perfect in justice, how does a holy God overlook the sin of his people? That clearly in the Bible it says, if you sin, you will die. The wages of sin are death. How does this work? Even more, if the wages of sin are death, and we've all sinned, and, and, and death separates us from God, even more than that, God is going to lavish, not just forgive our sins and not just um, give us life, he's going to lavish all that he has, everything that he has on his people. I mean, we can't even grasp this as, as human beings, how much we are going to inherit and what that is going to look like. It is beyond our imagination. We can imagine for a split second, but we, we can't because there's no framework to imagine life in any other way. Many of you are sick and you're facing surgeries and there's relational problems in families and we, that's all we know. But there's coming a day, brothers and sisters, where that's all going to be over. And that's our inheritance. And God is going to lavish that on you. Lavish it on you. It's going to pour on you in a way that you've never received anything. And we know it's true. We've been given the Holy Spirit to cry to God, Abba, Father, we know it's true and we know it's coming. But how does this happen? Well, this is how it happens. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. He didn't know any sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is it's the great exchange. The perfect one, the one who never sinned, totally spotless, totally blameless, lived a perfect life. Never. I mean, again, we can't, fathom that. Never did anything wrong. He lived a perfect life. He was totally obedient to the Father. And the sin of all of us is put on Christ. So we might become righteous. This is it. This is the death that has occurred in Hebrews 9.15 that redeems them, us, from the transgressions. A death occurred for our redemption. Praise the Lord. John Piper says of, of this idea, he says, how, how, how is this possible? I'm asking that question. How can a holy God who is perfect in justice overlook the sins of his people? Um, his answer is Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died in our place and bore our condemnation by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He, God, condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh bore the condemnation? His. Whose sins were being condemned? Ours. This is the great 
exchange. This is the cross. This is why we're singing his blood ran red. Oh, at the cross, at the cross. This is why we sing songs about blood and the, the cross. Here it is again in 2 Corinthians. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God lays our sins on Christ and punishes them in him. And in Christ's obedient death, God fulfills and vindicates his righteousness and imputes or credits it to us. Our sin on Christ, his righteousness on us. This is the gospel. This is, this is it. This is why we sing the songs that, that, that we sing. So the writer of Hebrews, to go back to, to, to verse 15, and it's whole, we kind of picked it apart. Um, Therefore he... Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. If you were singing with us today, you you sang about the blood of Jesus. Um, In fact, there'll be another song at the end about uh, the blood of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, or if you have, um, and I know you have friends that are not, and family that are not Christians, think about it for a moment. All the, the fuss and the, the songs about the blood, that might seem rather weird to the world. We, we're singing about the blood of, of, of a man uh, who died on a cross. Um, I mean, again, for, for those who are not immersed in the Bible or the story of the Bible, that's probably an odd oddity of, of Christianity. We need to, to always remember that. Um, but I want to kind of unpack and, and get behind this a little and, and maybe give you some ammunition um, or a foundation to, to think this through if you ever are in conversations with, with friends about it who just don't understand it. First, we, we, we got to go back to the book of Genesis um, we know that when God created everything, he said it's, it's very good. Um, it was a, a kind of an umph, uh, the, the Hebrew word is just like this really like, mm, that was good. It was like there's, there's a, an umph to it. Um, and then he, he puts the man in the garden, he says this in Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat, of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam and Eve are are in the garden. God is, the Bible says he's walking in the garden with them in the cool of the day. So imagine that, that's that's amazing. And and imagine for a moment, Adam and Eve, their, their minds are perfect. I don't know about you, but I, I sometimes walk into rooms and I don't remember why I walked into that room. I, I'm sure that's happened to you. If you're young, maybe not. Um, their minds are sharp. Their vision is, is, is sharp. They, they can see their, their senses. They can smell. They can smell everything. Their senses are acute, the way they were made to be. They're in paradise. They have the ability to enjoy God's goodness. They're not in sin. And again, they're, they're in paradise. I, I can remember uh, 
years ago, my family and I, we, and I were, we were gifted a, a, a vacation to the Cayman Islands. And I, if you've ever been to the Cayman Islands, it's clear blue water. It's just really lush and beautiful. And I can remember there was a tree with sea grapes, um, and you could kind of like lay under the tree, and the water was like clear. You could see. You could just see. You go in the water, put on goggles, and you can actually see that it was warm. There were coconuts on the tree. It was lush. It was paradise. And think about your best vacation like that. Now the Garden of Eden is just multiply that, multiply that by who knows what. I mean, this is beauty. And with, with the humanness to enjoy the beauty, that's Adam and Eve. And they have one command. Don't eat from this one tree. Of course, we know the story. We know how that goes. They disobey. They listen to the voice of the tempter. They rebel against God. And all of paradise is lost in a moment. And we have this in Genesis 3-7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Stay with me. This is coming to a point that it's coming back to, to Hebrews, I, I promise you. Um, so Adam and Eve sin, and then immediately they know, hey, we're naked. They feel the loss of something. They feel guilt, and they feel shame. They, we, we know from the narrative that they, they hide. When we sin, we often try to hide as well. There's nothing new under the sun. Um, it, it all comes back to Genesis, by the way. It, it, the Bible always comes back to the, to the found, foundation of the story. But I want you to notice here in, in 3.7, what did they do? They were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So I don't know if you've ever seen a fig leaf, but um, it's not going to be the best covering. It's not going to be the best covering. So, so they know that they, they have lost something, and they try to deal with it by their own works. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this of the garden. We have an innate feeling that we were meant for something bigger and higher. There is in every one of us a recollection, a memory of what we once were. In Adam, there was a glory about his very body. And although we have lost this and never really have known it, a memory lingers. So all Lloyd-Jones is saying, and, and what we all know to be true, is we always feel like we're short of something. We always know that, hey, we could be doing this better. We're missing something. And that incompleteness, that what is missing, is the glory that was once lost. I would ask you this morning, are you aware of your sense of incompleteness, an incompleteness or, or loss? And you feel in, in your inner being and urging that you're just crying out for more, like life has to be better than this. There's got to be more than this. Has it ever occurred to you that in your life, in one sense, your life is just a sowing of fig leaves on that feeling of loss? all of your works and all of the insecurities and, and we tear each other down to try to get uh, the upper um, hand. Isn't this just a longing for glory that was lost in the garden? But I want you to, to really see here what happens in, in 321 because this is where it comes back 
to the book of Hebrews, this little detour. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So they sewed the fig leaves on and tried to do it their way. And God says, no, I have a better way. But I want you to see what's packed in here, and it's not explicit, but, it, but it's here. For their clothing, something had to die. These are animal skins, garments of skins, and clothe them. So animals that did nothing wrong are now dying, and blood is being spilled. Right here in Genesis 3, you have the substitutionary atonement that we just talked about, the great exchange. You have it in a shadow form with, with, with God um, slaying animals and clothing Adam and Eve with actual clothes, right? They have fig leaves on, and he's saying, that ain't, that's not going to cut it. I, I've got clothes. And, and even in that, he's saying there's more to come. There's more to come. But if you're a, a student of the Bible, you know that that this never, it starts here, the sacrifice for Adam and Eve, and then immediately you see Abel sacrificing, and then you see Noah sacrificing, and then Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Israel. Like, it doesn't stop. The whole Old Testament is filled with blood. It's all a bloody mess. And if you were to go and read the, the uh, accounts in the temple where Solomon, and they're dedicating the temple, and, and it's like, Thousands of animals. I mean, the blood and the stench in the temple must have been crazy. Blood had to be running like a river. And this is no accident. This is God speaking as he does over the course of large swaths of time, showing his people this is what needs to happen for you to be whole. Hebrews 9 18 to 22 says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So we know that this is just a, a, a truth of the Bible. That just It's a thread. You can call it the scarlet thread. It's just, just a thread of blood sacrifice right from Genesis and just keeps getting bigger, building and building and building until we get to Christ. And, and again, if you, you weren't here last week, we talked about the blood of Christ does what the blood of bulls and goats cannot do. It settles the conscience. It, it, it cleanses us. All this blood in the Old Testament could not do that. It was merely pointing to what was coming that would one day do it. And people in the Old Testament had faith. They were looking forward to what was going to happen. We look backward, but where we're in a better covenant is that actually happened. The, the sacrifice of Christ happened. The blood was spilled and our consciences 
are cleansed and purified and our hearts are cleansed and the Holy Spirit is living uh, within us and, and with us um, in a new way. Leviticus 17, 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So there's, there's something here, the life and the blood, and God requires a life for life. Sin, let, blood spilled for sin. This is one of the ways, like we just said, in which the entire Bible is pointing to Jesus. When Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, and, and he says, you search the scriptures because you think you, you understand them, but you don't realize these scriptures are all about me. And this is one of the ways. It's not just that the scriptures in the Old Testament will actually um, speak about Jesus coming. It's the whole totality of the story is about Jesus. Amen. He is the word that the writer of Hebrews keeps using. It's, we, in our English Bible, it says perfect. But in, in Greek, it's telos. And that, that word just means meaning, purpose, ultimate end, completeness. Jesus, his blood that we sing about and we will sing about again is the telos of all the Old Testament blood. It's the purpose of it. It's the completeness of it. It's the end of it. It's the goal of it. In fact, the Apostle Peter says it like this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold, silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The blood of Christ is precious to his children. It's precious. It's not precious to, to, to those who deny him. It's precious to his children. I mean, it is precious. It transcends that. I mean, it's not precious to, to them. But why? I want to ask and, and finish out this sermon with why is the blood of Christ precious? Well, first, because the blood of Christ comes from God's own Son. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have existed in eternal, loving, perfected fellowship. There was no beginning. And God and His Son and the Spirit covenanted together and said that, that Christ will redeem a people for them. And it was costly. We talk about grace being free, and, and it is free to us, but it cost God his son. If you've ever read John 17, if you're a note taker, write that down and just read today John 17 and you will see how much the son loves the father and the father loves the son. I mean, the language between Jesus and the father in the gospels, I, it's precious beyond, you know, there's no human relationship we have that we speak the way that they speak of each other. And the Father and the Son, together with the Spirit, willingly 
went to the the son willingly went to the cross. So it's precious because it's God's own son. It's precious because his blood pays a debt that was owed. We are ransomed by the blood of Christ. It is a payment. Jesus' blood is a payment. The innocent son of God paying for the guilty. We, we just went through those scriptures. It pays a debt. The blood of Christ is precious because it purchases our eternal inheritance. For now, it has brought us out of darkness into his glorious light, and we can taste, and we know what's coming, and we know definitively what's coming, but we haven't inherited yet. That day is coming. That's future. And his blood purchased that for us. We could not work or do that on our own. The blood of Jesus also cleanses us. Last week, we talked about it perfecting the conscience and cleansing the conscience. It purifies our hearts. It washes us clean. We sing about that. It washes us. The writer of Hebrews is going to say his blood speaks. The author of Hebrews says the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That is because the blood of Christ has purpose to it. And his blood shows us his love. I don't know if you've ever wondered if God loves you. Maybe you've wondered that in times where you felt distant from him. If you ever wonder that, I would just tell you to look to the cross and see that the cost of that was for you. His blood shows us his love. We're about to, well, the the last song that we sing today, um, there's a line in it that says, Thank you, Jesus for the blood applied. Thank you, Jesus, it has washed me white. Thank you, Jesus, you have saved my life, brought me from the darkness into glorious light. Brothers and sisters, he is the one mediator between God and man. He has his hand on you and his hand on the Father, metaphorically. Let's praise him and sing praises to him now. Heavenly Father, we we love you, and um, Lord, we come to you um, confessing that, that often we don't think about these things um, long enough, deep enough, with enough um, effort. Our minds are, are easily distracted. We think about worldly things and um, all sorts of, of less weighty matters, um, often instead of the weightiest matters we can ponder, which is um, you, your, your son, his sacrifice, the new covenant, the blood of Christ, the resurrection, the inheritance to come. Help us to think about these things, Lord. Stir in us a love for you that maybe was missing when we walked in here this morning. Give us a depth of understanding from your word. We confess that often our understanding is shallow, And we confess that 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 shallowness produces shallow worship and our our joy is often dependent on every circumstance in our life rather than you and knowing that your joy, our our love for you transcends um, and the joy that you give in our love for you transcends circumstance. So help us to grab hold of that. Unite our hearts and our minds together as we sing these last two songs. We pray this in, in the 
name of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in with us. We hope that you found this sermon edifying, encouraging, and challenging. To learn more about Vintage Faith Church, visit VintageFaithCicero.com. And of course, if you live in the area, we invite you to worship the Lord with us on Sunday mornings.